She's going to bring us up to date on managing difficult-to-treat liver patients, that is, the patients with um, failing livers. And since we're going to be getting involved with treating viral hepatitis, sometimes um, the virus starts to win. And how to manage that, I think everyone raised their hand to refer to the hepatologist, but recognizing the problems and understanding what they are um, is critical. So, uh, Marion, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, I also have a case-based um, discussion. And when we think about end-stage liver disease, it doesn't really matter what the cause of the liver disease is. With increasing fibrosis, you eventually get cirrhosis, which initially is compensated, and then it becomes decompensated. And it can be decompensated by variceal hemorrhage, by ascites, by encephalopathy, or by in, uh, synthetic dysfunction. And it's important to remember that hepatocellular carcinoma can also lead to decompensation of liver disease. So the transition from cirrhosis to decompensated cirrhosis occurs at the rate of about 5 to 7% per year. And the best predictor is an invasive test measuring the hepatic venous wedge pressure gradient, which we don't usually do. Uh, how do we otherwise predict the severity of liver disease? Well, there are two classic tools that you heard a bit about this morning, the child's Pew-Turcotte score or the model for end-stage liver disease. And I put them both in your handout on the next page because I realized I didn't have it going right through the flow. The child's Pew-Turcotte score has been used for decades and was the first score that was used to assess who got the next liver. And it involves assessment of the severity of hepatic encephalopathy, severity of ascites, and then uh, three uh, serum markers, bilirubin, albumin, and prothrombin time. So if you look like everyone in this room, you have a CPT score of five. If you look like a lemon on a stick, you have a CPT score of 12 plus. So really you only need to do it in the middle when somebody has a touch of ascites, a little bit of encephalopathy, an elevated bilirubin, a low albumin. I bring you to the point that albumin is really, really critical that you assess the albumin. There are only two liver function tests available to most of us. One is albumin, and the other is INR. And if you do nothing else before you treat your patient, make sure both of them are normal, not near normal, normal. So about 10 years ago, the model for end-stage liver disease came in because they said we hepatologists were cheating on the severity of ascites and the severity of encephalopathy, trying to get our patients higher up on the transplant list. So this is a simple scoring, it's not simple. It's a scoring system only using three parameters, bilirubin, INR, and creatinine. So if they're only the bilirubin is elevated, the MELD is 10, our MELD would be six. If you double the bilirubin and double the INR, you double the bilirubin. If you then double the creatinine, it goes up to 27. So you can see that it, you can easily tell who has the most severe disease, and this is predictive of 
mortality after TIPS procedure, predictive of mortality after surgery. It's a good uh, scoring system to have. You can put it in your uh, iPhone, etc. You can just leave it on the computer. If you just type in meld calculation, you get about four different versions to use. So here's my patient, who's a very dear patient, 53-year-old white man who is HIV positive. And he'd, when I first met him some years ago, he'd had abnormal LFTs for 10 years. He had a high viral load, genotype 1, obese, and diabetes. So what can we tell him about his hepatitis C? Well, we can tell him because he's co-infected, he'll have a higher HCV RNA. He'll have shorter progression to end-stage liver disease. Not everybody who's co-infected progresses, but those who do, their time to progression is concertina down compared to mono-infected patients. And this is also seen after transplant, that the time to progression is shortened. The, the cofactors he has, obesity and diabetes, adversely affect outcomes to treatment. And always remember to check hep B and hep A because he's already got one bad problem. You don't want him to have more. So here he is. He's got a normal albumin bilirubin. His platelets are 120,000. His INR is normal. He's got quite a lot of activity going on in his liver with an AST of 360 and an ALT of 254. He has a very high alpha-fetoprotein, 150, normals around about 6, 7, 8. He'd had hepatitis A in the past, and he'd had hepatitis B in the past, and he's now latent, and his HPV DNA was negative. So what do you want to do? This is your first question. Liver biopsy, imaging study, treat him. And this is the days before Bisepravir, Tilaprevir, but it's the same answer. Genotype him and HCV RNA. Okay, you have been overwhelmed by Dr. Nagy. So, I do not want to do a liver biopsy because he already has cirrhosis. He has low platelets, indicative of portal hypertension. His AST is higher than his ALT, which is what you see when a patient becomes cirrhotic. Normally, the ALT is higher. It's not a great test to hang your hat on, but the platelets certainly are. I agree with everybody who wanted to do an ultrasound. You worry about this patient having hepatocellular carcinoma. So we did an ultrasound, and there was no tumor, but he did have cirrhosis. But I didn't believe that, so I did a CT, and again, I didn't find a tumor. And it's reason we, all, we did, of course, want to know what his genotype was and what his viral load was. So here he is. We opted for treatment, but before we opted for treatment, we evaluated him for liver transplantation. Because he didn't have a normal meld, but he was a child's A cirrhotic, he was compensated, he had a normal INR, he had a normal albumin, but he just had that look about him. So we 
did a phase one, which is just introducing to the surgeons, the hepatologists, the social worker, to make sure he could be a candidate if he decompensated. We treated him, and remember, he was $2 million to start. He had a two-log... No, he didn't. He didn't have a two-log drop, but he begged me to continue. So he continued for 24 weeks. He had a lot of side effects. He had anemia put him on erythropoietin, his head was all messed up, we put him on the appropriate drugs, he dropped his white count, he was on GCSF. Interestingly, even though it didn't help his virus, it did decrease his alpha-fetoprotein. And if you remember the HALT-C study of long-term treatment of patients with interferon and ribavirin, there were 16 patients who had high alpha-fetoprotein without evidence of cancer. 15 of them normalized their alpha-fetoprotein on treatment. So the rapidly virally, repli rapidly replicating hepatocytes which produce alpha-fetoprotein were turned off. And the one patient who didn't subsequently was found to have cancer. So what do we offer him now? So... We stopped his therapy because he was a non-responder, but at the same time, he developed ascites. So he came in to me about uh, three weeks later with the obvious development of ascites. So this is a slide to remind you that after your first liver decompensation, time to death is faster in HIV-positive co-infected patients. So if you look in the blue... This is HCV-positive patients who do not have co-infection. Their one-year survival after their first decompensation was 74%, and their five-year survival was 44%. Whereas if you look at the co-infected patient, after the first decompensation, so going from compensated cirrhosis to first decompensation, half the patients survived a year, and only a quarter were around at five years, again showing you the more rapid progression. So you don't want to wait until the patient has a few decompensations before you think about transplantation. So how do you develop ascites? Well, as you know, with cirrhosis, you get increased intrahepatic resistance and portal or sinusoidal hypertension, which is he, he had as evidenced by his low platelet count. This leads to splanchnic uh, vasodilatation and systemic vasodilatation, decreases the effect of arterial blood volume, activates all those neurohumeral systems you read about in medical school and subsequently forgot. Then this leads to sodium retention and the development of ascites. So how do you fix it? You can fix it ultimately with liver transplant. You can do a transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt or a TIPS to help the decrease effect of arterial blood volume. Patients have lower blood pressures, so many patients who may have been hypertensive don't need their hypertensive therapy. That's a suggestion that they're developing portal hypertension and it's decompensating. You can give albumin. Sodium retention, spironolactone and ferrosamide in a ratio of 3 to 1. Start off at 75 of spironolactone and 20 or 40 of ferrosamide. You can increase it up to 
two or three hundred of furosemide and 160 of uh, two or three hundred of spironolactone, 160 of furosemide. When you get ascites, if patients aren't responding to diuretics, you can do large volume paracentesis. Peritoneovenous shunting is almost is rarely used now. TIPS is used with some success, and then ultimately transplant. So the stages of ascites, initially you have diuretic responsive ascites, then the patient as they worsen will get refractory ascites, then they'll have evidence of hyponatremia, then hepatorenal syndrome. And each stage is more is worsening liver disease, a more deranged state. So I've told you about the diuretic responsive, and it's really important for the patient to be on a low-salt diet. The patients have normal salt content in their body, just too much water. So if they keep adding salt, you just keep adding water, and they might as well just flush the diuretics straight down the toilet and not put them through themselves. So they need to be on two gram or less sodium diet. And basically, I say to my patients, if it tastes good, you can't have it. <laughs> so many patients who come in, they say, I've tried all these diuretics, check their urine sodium. If the urine sodium is 75 when they're meant to be on a low-sodium diet, they're probably cheating. Refractory ascites is truly diuretic unresponsive. And for these patients, you can give large volume paracentesis. And for every liter you take off, you must replace with a 50 cc's of 25% salt pour albumin. So a little bottle of salt pour albumin per liter. Otherwise, you end up with a catabolic state, more muscle loss, more malnutrition. TIPS, which I told you about, uh, intrahepatic shunting, leads to a higher transplant-free survival, but more encephalopathy. So it changes the patient's complication. The patient has to know you won't have to have the large volume paracentesis every week or two, but you may become confused and need to take therapy for that. And once you explain it, they can decide which complication they'd prefer. And you do the tips to get the wedge pressure under 12. You give albumin, midodrine, octreotide to lead to splanchnic vasoconstriction to improve the effective arterial uh, volume going to the kidney. That is often successful, but often not. It's something that has to be done in hospital, so it really isn't a long-term issue. And experimentally, vasopressin to receptor antagonists. What do you do about hyponatremia, which is the worst uh, complication? You do not give hypertonic saline. You water restrict, the fluid restrict the patient to allow increased fluid uh, removal and the sodium will float up. What about esophageal varices? Somewhere between 35 and 80% of patients with cirrhosis have varices. And about half, a quarter to half of them will bleed. Once they bleed, they have quite a significant chance of dying. And if they do survive, the majority will re-bleed. Therefore, it is critical 
to know if the patient has varices, and if they do, to put them on therapy. So every patient with cirrhosis needs an upper endoscopy. If they have no varices, you repeat it in three years if they're compensated, but you repeat it yearly if they're decompensated. If they have small varices, put them on a non-selective beta blocker like propranolol. Why do we use non-selective? Because we want to um, change the splanchnic circulation, not the cardiac. So you don't want a selective beta blocker. And if they have large varices with evidence of bleeding, do beta blockers and band ligation. They have large varices without ble bleeding, just beta blockers, or if they've been to a gastroenterologist, they'll get beta blockers and band ligation. So back to my patient. He didn't respond to Peg Riber. He developed ascites. His albumin dropped to 2.1. We did an upper endoscopy. He had grade 2 varices. We put him on propranolol, and we moved up his phase 2 transplant evaluation to assess his cardiac status, pulmonary status, etc. So what about a paterenal syndrome, a really nasty complication, and he didn't develop this, of uh, decompensated liver disease? Once again, it's related to the sinusoidal portal hypertension with splanchnic vasodilatation, decreasing effective arterial blood volume, therefore leading to renal vasoconstriction and a paterenal. And about... Um, a, a quite a significant number of patients who are hospitalized with cirrhosis will have acute renal failure. And it's the most common form of pre-renal renal failure in these patients, accounting for the vast majority. Because hepatorenal is a form of pre-renals. The kidney is seeing less volume. And less common is ATN. It results... I didn't show you the horrible diagram, but once again, it results from vasodilatation and decrease in effective arterial blood volume. It occurs in patients who usually who have a refractory ascites and or hyponatremia. And there are two forms. Type 1 is the rapidly progressive that you usually see with alcoholic hepatitis, where the creatinine doubles or the creatinine clearance is less than 20, urine sodium less than 10, and the prognosis is dismal. Most patients are dead in a month. Type 2 is much more common that we see in our patients with cirrhosis and decompensated liver disease. It's more slowly progressive. It's, the creatinine's a little lower. And remember, if a patient has decompensated liver disease, they may have a creatinine of 1.2, but that's not normal for them. So you have to really assess their creatinine clearance. And again, the urine sodium is low, and it's associated with diuretic unresponsive ascites. But the survival is better. It's about six months. It gives you time to get to transplantation. The treatment, the ultimate treatment is liver transplant. Midodrine and octreotide, there have been a number of papers from the Spanish group saying benefit from this. Uh, because it leads to splanchnic vasoconstriction, which improves the effective arterial blood volume, improves the, uh, decreases renal vasoconstriction. But in many cases, it's not successful. It should be given in concert 
with intravenous albumin to increase intravascular volume. So we end up using a huge amount of albumin, one with octreotide for hepatorenal and two to replace uh, ascites after large volume paracentesis. The most common bacterial infection in hospitalized cirrhotic patients is SBP. And for all the infectious disease doctors, there are no infectious clinical suspicions. Fever, abdominal pain, tenderness, leukocytosis are rare. What the patients present with is unexplained new encephalopathy, worsening jaundice, development of or worsening renal failure, that is when you have to think about hepatic uh, SBP. And it's diagnosed by tapping the ascites if the white count is greater than 500 or the polymorphonuclear leukocyte count is greater than 250, that's diagnostic, and you initiate treatment that day before you get any cultures back. The acidic fluid has to be placed in blood culture bottles. Studies done 40 years ago but sometimes forgotten. If you put them, if you send them in a gram stain, which is a waste of the test, and ask them to culture it, 45% are positive. If you put them in blood culture bottles with all those good nutrients, over 90% became positive in patients with proven SBP. So it should be put in blood culture bottles at the bedside. And you start treatment immediately once you get your cell count. Uh, Standard treatment is cephalosporins. Renal dysfunction is the major cause of death in these patients. So intravenous albumin is given on day one and three if the patient has a high bilirubin, and elevated creatinine. And this prevents uh, hepatorenal failure. To prevent recurrence of uh, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, there's really no correct answer. We used to say Cipro once a week. Then we used to say the combo of trimethoprin every day, every other day, three times a week, or norfloxacin. The reality is no matter which one you use, patients do end up getting resistance. They initially, the most common organism is E. coli. Um, so you really have to choose one, get familiar with it, and switch if the patient gets recurrent infections with resistant organisms. I bring up the point for HIV-positive patients. They should be on primary prophylaxis if their MELD is over 9. For HIV-negative patients, you can probably wait till the MELD is over 12. Hepatic encephalopathy results from the portosystemic shunting and failure to metabolize the neurotoxic substances. After 50 years, we don't know what the neurotoxic substances are. We know they're associated with ammonia, but they don't, ammonia levels don't really, are not really useful in the clinical setting, and they poorly correlate with stage of encephalopathy. But the treatment is a, to rem- what are the precipitants? Well, I've told you the most common is infection, SBP or a urinary tract infection, GI bleeding with an increased protein load in the gut, electrolyte imbalance, 
portal vein thrombosis, so you're looking, every patient who comes in with encephalopathy needs an ultrasound to rule out portal vein thrombosis. If they have portal vein thrombosis, you want to be sure they don't have hepatocellular carcinoma and worsening liver disease per se, or running out of liver, can induce hepatic encephalopathy. And the treatment is really to reduce the production of protein and ammonia from the gut through non-absorbable disaccharides, such as lactulose, lactolol, and lactose, or non-absorbable antibiotics. And rifaximin has largely replaced neomycin because fewer side effects, better tolerated, nicer outcomes. Protein restriction should not be used in hepatic encephalopathy, and this is a very common error from gastroenterologists through primary care. Because if you protein restrict the patient, you promote protein degradation, and if this goes on for a long time, you worsen the nutritional status and end up with worse muscle mass, which has a much worse outcome. I have three patients in my long life who developed encephalopathy after protein. And one was because the wife gave him three steaks a day. And a month ago, I'd, I hadn't seen this for 25 years, a month ago a patient came in with encephalopathy and the wife said, yes, they explained to me that he has to be on a 40-gram protein diet for every meal. A day, not for every meal. And she managed to give him encephalopathy, but that's hard work. And she measured it out. So we should always monitor patients for hepatocellular carcinoma. And who, which patients with Hepatitis C require that. All patients with cirrhosis, and I think many of our experts would say if a patient has F3, F4, because maybe it's an error, you should start monitoring them. And the screening strategy is imaging every 6 or 12 months. Gets, as If the patient is decompensated, they definitely have to be every 6 months. We usually do ultrasound. If they find something or they're not happy, they'll get you to do a CT or an MRI. If you have a terrible ultrasonographer at your site, you might end up doing a CT or an MRI. Alpha fetoprotein, 99% of people continue to use that, even though the guidelines say no, written by the 1%. Um, because if the alpha fetoprotein goes up, then you can use that as a trigger to maybe image the patient more frequently. And if they have cancer with a high alpha fetoprotein, you can use it as a marker for recurrence. And why do we do this every six months or so? Because the incidence of cancer occurs at low incidence, about a 1% to 4% per year, and the doubling time is really quite long compared to other tumors. So what are the indications for transplant? They're the development of decompensated liver disease. That is synthetic dysfunction, and for that you need an albumin and an INR. A MELD greater than 12, most sites, we, we know that if your MELD is less than 12, you'll live longer without a transplant. Ascites, variceal hemorrhage, hepatic encephalopathy. And I showed you that the decompensation 
in HIV patients is associated with a median survival of 1.5 years, and hepatocellular carcinoma itself is an indication for transplant if the tumor is confined to the liver and is small, the so-called Milan criteria, one lesion less than five or three lesions each less than three. The liver transplantation is given to the person with the highest meld per blood group. So you, do, you have to do uh, bilirubin, creatinine, INR, every three months if the patient is outside in hospital or if they have a meld of 20, they get it done every week, and you do a serum, serum sodium. However, if you're only doing these tests, you underestimate people who have chronic encephalopathy. You underestimate people who have just ascites. You underestimate people who have hepatic hydrothorax, a, a fluid in the lungs and ascites equivalent, or hepatopulmonary syndrome. So why do we transplant co-infected patients? Well, I don't need to tell this audience that antiretroviral therapy has markedly decreased mortality, decreased the incidence of opportunistic infection, decreased hospitalization rates, and the immunosuppression um, of transplant actually have some anti-HIV effects. And we have much better prophylaxis for opportunistic infections to treat patient, patients post-transplant. So here, back to my patient who decompensated on peg riber. He developed ascites, a low albumin. He had varices, but his meld was only 15. It was enough to make him sick, but not enough to get him a liver. So what do you do in those circumstances? There are two opportunities. One is... Signing up for what's called high-risk donor, but I always say higher-risk donor because every donor is a risk. Even your nearest and dearest doesn't know everything you've done all your life, and there could be some naughty things there that could have a bad outcome. So when someone donates their loved one's organs, they give information. We test for... HIV, Hep B, Hep C, syphilis, infection, but you don't know if there's a tumor lingering. You don't know everything. So patients need to know there's a risk. A higher risk donor is somebody who has Hep C already, but a perfect liver and died of something else. Remember, only 20% of people with hep C get cirrhosis, and only half of them die of their cirrhosis, and most patients with hep C die with their hep C, not of it. So hep C, uh, latent hep B, so cleared surface antigen, but they still could have CCC DNA in their hepatocytes, and for those patients, you could reactivate after transplant, but we can put them on anti-hepatitis B medication. CNS tumor, Older donor have a worse outcome. Um, CDC high-risk donor, a 20-year-old in perfect health found uh, with a needle in their arm from a drug overdose. They don't have any of the things we know to test for, but they are at risk for other things. And a deceased, uh, a cardiac death donor. So most donations, as you know, are... um, brain-dead patients, but there are some patients for whom the family agrees to donate, 
but it's a cardiac death, so there's a longer time until the heart stops before they can harvest the organs, and therefore there's an increased risk of biliary disease, an increased risk of complications after the transplant. And then the last thing is a live donor, having someone give you part of their liver, and that is a slightly higher risk of biliary infection, uh, disease also. So he signed up for the higher-risk donor and received a deceased donor liver after cardiac death. And he was in the ICU, intubated, and pretty sick. He survived. He had lots of biliary issues, requiring, in fact, that, he, that his left lobe was resected about a year after transplant. He had multiple complications. He had trouble with his antiretroviral therapy, agreeing with his calcineurin inhibitors, as you'll hear later from Dr. Flexner. And he turned up to see me one day, because he always liked to come see me, not to go to transplant clinic. And he said, I'd like to be treated again. And I said, you would have to be joking. You know, I'm the person who survived your first treatment and nearly <laughs> killed you. You know, here you are, I nearly knocked you off, you get a transplant, we nearly kill you with the transplant, you finally, for the first time in two and a half years, you don't have a complication, you don't have a tube sticking out you, and you want me to treat you. He said, yeah, I do. Well, he was right. I treated him, and he cleared his HCV RNA, and I treated him with Peg Riber because that's all we had. And the amazing thing about co-infection, unlike mono-infection after transplant, they either do really, really badly or some small numbers actually clear the infection either spontaneously or with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. He's exactly the sort of patient that if we'd had all oral medication and we could have put him on put that, him on those medications while he was waiting for his deceased donor, he would have not had many of the problems post-transplant. And, of course, he didn't have an easy time of interferon and ribavirin. He was anemic. He was pancytopenic. His white count was low. He came in one day short of breath with chest pain. I told him he had to go to the ER. He said, why? why? You're a doctor. Tell me what's wrong. I said, no, I'm only below the diaphragm. So he, he went to the emergency room and he had pericarditis. I mean, he had every rare complication of interferon a person could have, but he cleared. And this is the data from UCSF, the NIH multicenter study, showing that patient survival from in co-infected in the red is lower than mono-infected in the blue. So patients who are co-infected have a lower graft survival and a lower patient survival than mono-infected patients. That's not true with hepatitis B. They have exactly the same survival. So I want to finish up by saying that all patients who have hepatitis C should be assessed for fibrosis stage prior to starting therapy. And you must determine if the patient has cirrhosis. You also must do an albumin and an INR because they're the only liver function tests. The others represent inflammation. And 
Progression to decompensated cirrhosis can occur with interferon-based therapies, as we saw this morning and we saw with my patient. All cirrhotic patients need to have be monitored for varices, so they all need an upper endoscopy. They need to be monitored for hepatocellular carcinoma. They need to be monitored for, for ascites and treated for and assessed, be, have at the very top of your head the idea a patient could have SBP. And you should consider transplantation after the first decompensation. And I know your transplant centers will yell at you, but that is the right answer. Thank you. Fantastic. Um, I have two quick questions while I wait for questions from the audience. So there seems to me to be a bit of a catch-22 on the liver transplant list because obviously you want to transplant the sickest patients because they other ones otherwise won't live. On the other hand, part of the waiting is, is a patorenal syndrome and some other things that uh, say renal function starting to go south. When they get the new liver, does the renal function turn around completely because yep. it's pre-renal? So if you have a patorenal, you're cured by transplant. Very nice studies done by Tom Stasel, the father of liver transplant in the U.S. He made dogs, patorenal, took out their kidney and put it into an anephric right. dog worked perfectly. So there's nothing structurally wrong with the kidney. What's wrong are the neurohumeral things. And in thinking about your patient who had a um, sort of inadequate response first time to interferon ribavirin and then the second time around, despite your objections, uh, had a cure, I'm wondering whether the, the IL-28B genotype, since interferon's acting on hepatocytes, whether the transplanted liver genotype is more important than the host genotype. It's not clear. There's one study from Hugo Rosen suggesting that if you, if you get a CC liver, you have a better outcome. But I think we need more studies, and Ken may know of more studies that are available. What about uh, the use of PEG, riba plus anything else post-transplant? Does it Interfere, besides the drug interactions that we're about to hear about, um, is, does the interferon, for example, increase the risk of rejection? So there's very old studies showing that interferon does increase the risk of rejection, more so in cardiac and renal trans, uh, transplant patients. But the problem post-transplant is tolerability is extremely low. Most patients can't get an adequate dose of ribavirin because in the first six to 12 months post-transplant, they're anemic. They have multiple other drug-drug combinations, and it's hard to get them through the therapy. That's why I think all orals will be perfect for these patients, even though we are treating some patients off-label with triple therapy. Any difference between which type of beta blocker besides the selective? So if you're using propranolol versus... Natalol or something? Doesn't matter. Okay. Use the one you're good at. What I like about propranolol is patients only need tiny little doses. So they may be on 20 twice a day, 23 times a day. You know, you ask the little old ladies, do they have trouble when they sit up? 10. I've had patients on 5. 
you can get down to really tiny doses that will de as long as you decrease the pulse rate by 10%. That's what they aim for. Okay. Um, sh you mentioned there's shorter progression to end-stage liver disease in HIV, HCV co-infected patients. Is that true even today where, say, somebody got treated early in the course of HIV, uh, got under control well at, say, a CD4 count of 500? Uh, do they tend to – don't have enough data yet to say whether they still will go faster. It's a good question. CD4 does predict the more rapid progression, yes. Um, can you lower the dose of interferon uh, in a cirrhotic patient? You usually have to lower the dose of interferon in a cirrhotic patient. And in fact, pre-transplant, the standard is to start with a low dose of 90 or 135 and go up rather than what we usually do, start high and go down, and the so-called ladder protocol. So using lower doses of ribavirin, lower doses of interferon, and increasing, because your aim is not to cure the liver, but to uh, remove the virus from the blood, because you're going to put the liver in the bucket, so you really just want to get it out of the blood. Okay. This is about hepatitis B vaccination for a hepatitis C patient, which is obviously recommended there. So they're not co-infected with hepatitis B. Uh, you're going to try to vaccinate them, but you give them the usual series, and it doesn't have immunity. First off, do you check for immunity every time? For transplant patients, we do. For compensated cirrhotics, I don't. Okay. Well, let's say you did, and there was no evidence of immunity, do you revaccinate? Do you use double dose? What do you, what do, you do then? So we at transplant use double dose and do zero, one, two, or three, depending how close they are to transplant. I don't, I mean, this audience knows better than me that the ideal time for vaccination is 20. Age of vaccination is 20, and most of our patients are old immunologically, that is over 40, so they have poor responses. So you can try doubling the dose. Some data in renal dialysis patients have tried to use intradermal vaccination. I think the data really are not that good. What percentage of people with hepatocellular carcinoma have elevated alpha-fetoprotein? Is it most Around about 60%. Okay, so it's not... It's, it's not helpful unless it's high. And in my patient... You know, you may be elevated because you have high turnover and more immature hepatocytes. Remember, in utero, you make alpha-fetoprotein, then post, after birth, you start making albumin. You mentioned that uh, every patient with HCV should be assessed for fibrosis. Do you mean by liver biopsy, fibrosure? I, mean, I mean by any method. Uh, I think that Palpation. what we really, really need is good non-invasive methods, and we don't have them. And Dave Thomas explained to you this morning that biopsy is not the gold standard, it's the bronze standard. So we really need to use all the methods available to us. We need to pick up if the patient is cirrhotic, has portal hypertension, and if a fibrosure says F0, you might say, well, hold off, but I, one in five chance I'm wrong. This is a question about a patient with co-infection, uh, hepatitis C1A, failed regular interferon ribavirin, has some degree of cirrhosis, um, and insists that he gets triple therapy right now with the newer agents. Would you treat him? 
Yeah, if he's absolutely gun ho sure. Why not? Um, would you treat a patient with hepatitis C co-infected who has stage 2 liver disease and in-stage renal disease uh, on hemodialysis awaiting transplant? Would they transplant a patient on end-stage renal disease? Not if he needs a liver as well. So yeah. the, if a patient, for mono-infected, I'll do that one first, it's easier. You're, you're on dialysis, waiting for, your patient's waiting for a transplant. It's really important to know the stage of their disease. If they have F01, then that patient can probably be treated post-renal transplant. But if they have significant fibrosis, and, you know, what am I going to... F3, for sure, if you transplant that patient, they'll decompensate their liver. So they need a liver and a kidney. Mm. At our centre, we do not do liver and kidney for HIV patients because, with hep C because the outcomes are so poor. So this, um, so this, this yeah. would be the home of all oral medication because yeah. renal transplant, renal failure, you can't give ribavirin. I know some very brave colleagues who give a touch of ribavirin, like 200. Just a whiff. Just a whiff, mm-hmm. pass it under the nose. But it's very hard to treat and the outcomes aren't as good. So this is really an unmet need for all oral medications. This is kind of a specific question, but a patient who has hepatitis C and had a successful liver transplant, but had the transplant done because of a small hepatocellular carcinoma. So that's been removed, new new liver in place, uh, but it's still hepatitis C infected in the new liver. Would you treat them for the hepatitis C at this point? So the outcome is 5% of patients die of severe recurrent hepatitis in the first year post-transplant, and we do not, do not offer them another liver. Somewhere between 20 25% of patients get cirrhosis at 5 to 7 years. So even though, well, this patient had cancer, but most patients have decompensated disease, they don't all get cirrhosis and decompensated disease after transplant. And we really don't know a lot about how to select the ones who do, so we offer treatment to anyone who has significant fibrosis on biopsy, and we do protocol... Many places do protocol biopsies or biopsies at 3, 6, and 12 months post-transplant. If you had all orals and you had 100% or 90% cure, you wouldn't worry about it. You'd treat everybody. When you do an assessment of someone for liver transplant, uh, social factors, is there there sort of a checklist that they have to be kind of not crazy? They have to be housed. They cannot come home to my place. Um, (laughs) They have to have someone who will look after them pre-transplant and post-transplant. And they could do very well post-transplant and be able to do many of their ADLs in a week or two. Or they could be 100% care for weeks post and weeks or months pre and weeks or months post. So they have to have dedicated family members or friends who would move in and give them 24-hour care. This is a huge commitment and one for which our society is not super-duper equipped for. They have to um, understand their medications and they have to be compliant with their medications. If they stop their medications, they'll die and therefore you'll lose them and you'll lose the other person who didn't get the liver. So... 
we don't care what they did in the past, but we care a lot about what they do in the future. So if they show that they're non-compliant, they're not candidates. If they show that they're using drugs and alcohol, they're not candidates. If they don't have support, they're not candidates. And it doesn't matter what the cause of their liver disease is. Okay, question from the floor. risk of really how long it would, might take to recur their hepato, you're weighing the hepatocellular carcinoma recurrence and death with, uh, against the uh, duration of uh, progression of the hepatitis C uh, as to whether to treat at that point or not. So the question of recurrent disease really depends on the size of the tumor, whether they had microvascular invasion at explant, because we don't ever biopsy tumors because of the risk of needle tract cancer, which would make the patient not a transplant candidate. So if at explant they have a small encapsulated tumor, they're the ones who don't recur. If they have a larger tumor or multiple tumors or vascular invasion or neural invasion, they're the patients at risk. And there are no good data post-transplant on randomized controlled studies showing that treating them decreases the risk of recurrence. But it makes sense. Okay, the last couple of questions are all kind of related, and I think there's maybe still some confusion about patients with renal disease. So let's create a scenario that maybe summarizes all these questions. You have a patient with end-stage renal disease on dialysis, and they've got hepatitis C and relatively stable hepatitis C, so not, not progressed liver disease. That's a person who you would try to eradicate the hepatitis C in, correct? We always try and eradicate hep C in renal dialysis patients if we can, but I'm saying it's very difficult and the success rate is low, and we don't have any data on DAAs. Right, but that's, a, that's where the FDA guidance actually could help us because it's encouraging use in these special populations of the newer agents. Correct. Uh, yeah. And so just another detail from one of the questions. Erythropoitin use as you try to treat? Do you just, I mean, obviously almost every renal... So all renal patients. patients are on erythropoietin. Right. Do you increase the dose? Or, you can you increase know? the dose. You can transfuse the patient. But tolerability of ribavirin is almost zero, but of interferon is low. And interferon alone is a very wimpy drug to treat hep C. Yeah. So we're starting with a, a second-rate combination and taking away one of the drugs, so you've got a much worse um, outlook. And I think this is really the unnet mead population that as soon as orals are available, many people will be treating their patients. Great. Well, thank you. Our hour with Marion was very successful. Thank you. <laughs>